Hello and welcome to Teach the Children the Truth, Ethnic Studies and Raza Studies in the TK-12 classroom. My name is Marisa Villegas Ramirez and I'm your host. I missed you all last week, but had to take a very much needed vacation with my beloved husband, Ruben. It was our five-year wedding anniversary and our 10-year first date anniversary this past week. And so we took a drive through the Southwest down to Northern Arizona around the Kingman Hackberry area and just outside of the Wallapai indigenous community in the desert, reconnecting with our love for the Southwest. It was an amazing experience and it was difficult to leave as much as we wanted to come home and be able to take a shower and enjoy those comforts of home. But we had an amazing time and now we're back. We're rejuvenated. My husband's back at work. I'm working on the podcast. I've got a bunch of projects going on right now. I'm excited to bring the energy that I have from this trip into my podcast for the summer. With that being said, let's jump into this week in ethnic studies history the week of June 22nd to June 28th. It's a short one. On June 26, 1940, we celebrate the birth of the incredible Chicano director, Luis Valdez. Luis Valdez is a playwright and director who was regarded as one of the most important and influential people living today. His internationally renowned and award-winning theater company, El Teatro Campesino, or the Farm Workers Theater, was founded by Luis in 1965. In the heat of the United Farm Workers struggle, and the Great Delano Grape Strike in California's Central Valley. His involvement with Cesar Chavez, the UFW, and the early Chicano movement left an indelible mark. Some of you may be aware that over the last few months, I've been working on some of my own personal writings, and I decided that I wanted to share some of those with you from time to time. So today I'm actually going to be reading from some of my writings. And the one I want to focus on today is called Being a New First-Year Teacher Isn't Easy. So this connects a little bit to what I shared about in a previous episode for new teachers, but this is my own personal story. So I'm going to go ahead and start. Nobody ever said being a teacher would be easy, but I sure did get more than I bargained for. The day I was hired for my first teaching position in Oakland, was at least a month before I even had my undergraduate diploma in hand. I was still preparing for finals that last semester at Cal when my mother told me about a hiring fair that was taking place in Oakland. Seeing as I had already wrapped my brain around becoming a teacher and having grown up in the Berkeley schools, it only made sense that I would eventually teach in the town I called home then. It never occurred to me to teach outside of Berkeley. After all the horror stories I grew up hearing about Oakland, there was never any consideration of that possibly becoming my home for the next 25 years. Nevertheless, I walked out of that hiring fair with a contract in hand and a promise that my first year as an Oakland teacher would be life-changing. They were right. Here is your roster and this is your classroom. Stonehurst Elementary. 
I still recall the first time I visited the Stonehurst Elementary School campus. When I was offered my teaching position, I was given a choice between two different schools and grades. The first school I was offered would have been a split grade placement at West, in West Oakland. The second school was a second grade position at Stonehurst, a K through five school in deep East Oakland. While neither of these placements sounded like the safest of locations, I knew that Stonehurst would likely have a more diverse population of black and brown children. And since I envisioned myself as a bilingual teacher, there was only one place that made sense. I drove down to 10315 East Street in Stone City, East Oakland, one day with my mom, a couple of weeks before the start of the orientation week for new staff. What I most recall from that first visit was the chain link fence with barbed wire running across the top along the front of the school. My first instinct was to call personnel and cancel my contract. My mom was petrified at the thought of her, quote, baby girl working in a place that required barbed wire to keep the inhabitants and physical buildings safe from criminal activity in the neighborhood. As much as I tried not to jump to conclusions about the situation I was about to get myself into, I could not help but wonder if my decision to teach in the Oakland Public Schools was not a serious mistake. Still, I knew that this was one of the neediest areas in the East Bay and that there was a very large Raza population here at the school site, which meant I could work with the people I aimed to serve as an educator. I decided to hold the line and do my best with whatever cards I was being dealt. All new OUSD teachers were required to participate in a week-long orientation before the school year started. I prepared to attend that Monday along with hundreds of other new hires who were both eager and terrified to begin their careers as Oakland educators. I was the single mother of a three-year-old daughter living at home with my own mother who was helping me to raise her. Cecilia was enrolled in preschool in Berkeley, allowing me to work full time. Still, the thought of leaving her every day to drive into the Stonehurst neighborhood to work with other people's children left me with a certain measure of guilt, probably something a lot of parent teachers can understand. I knew it was time for me to begin my career and make a life for myself and my daughter, and that both thrilled and terrified me. I entered the large Huerta Hall, dedicated to UFW co-founder and labor icon Dolores Huerta, at what is now the Met West and La Escuelita shared school campus. I saw dozens of strained faces, all searching for a familiar smile. I recognized a couple of people from the hiring fair and half-heartedly waved, trying not to hint at the fear suffocating me inside. As I walked into the large room where the training would take place for the week, I looked across to another table and saw a face I recognized from my three years of study at Cal. I stared until my eyes were met with the same relief of recognition we were both searching for. Mario Garcia would become one of my partners in crime and the inspiration for many of the writings and work I will share. I first met Mario through a mutual friend, my compadre, Ruben, formerly Martinez, while attending Laney College in 1993. Mario was a student at Cal at that time, having entered right out of high school as a freshman. I was still a year away from transferring as a Chicano Studies major. 
I remember meeting Mario at one of the various parties we threw for La Raza Student Union to fundraise for any of a variety of causes we championed in the three years I attended Laney. At the time, I did not know Mario well, but was very close to Ruben, who would eventually become one of my daughter's first godfathers, a tradition in the Mexican-American community steeped in both Catholic doctrine and indigeneity. As my circle of friends grew through my association with Ruben, it only made sense that I would come to include Mario as one of my closest friends. As soon as we saw each other in Huerta Hall, we immediately sat at the same table and started a conversation. I remember how surprised we were to run into each other in this particular situation, but there was also a sense of relief and excitement. Mario had graduated in ethnic studies the same year I graduated from Berkeley. He was immediately accepted into an education internship program with Cal, which was to begin the same year as our first year of teaching. On the other hand, I had not yet been accepted to a teaching credential program. I was hired on an emergency credential, which allowed me to teach in the classroom full-time while obtaining my multiple subject teaching credential through a university program in the evening. As the conversation progressed, Mario asked me what school I had been placed at. When I responded, Stonehurst, his face lit up as he had also been placed at the same school. What were the chances that two Chicanos from Cal would wind up at the same school site? He had been offered, a, I believe, a fourth or fifth grade position, and I had accepted a second grade position. We both knew we would be teaching bilingual classes and expected our rosters to be made up of all Spanish surnames. At that moment, we both began considering what we could accomplish with our students at the same school site. Even then, our vision was probably more involved than just mildly and superficially impacting the lives of 40 students on our combined rosters. However, the possibilities seemed endless, and in those first few moments of what would later become a 25-year career together in the same school district, I know that we almost immediately had a compelling vision of what might be the outcome. We continued to marvel over the fact that we'd been randomly placed at the same school site and were excited by the idea of working together and building upon the themes of our respective programs. Me with a major in Chicano studies and Mario having majored in the broader field of ethnic studies, along with our own upbringing as Chicanos. As the day progressed, we automatically moved from space to space together as much as possible to not break this seemingly mystical bond we were building as educators. As master teachers prattled on about classroom management, lesson design, administrative expectations, managing student behavior, positive and negative parent interactions, and all the other aspects of teaching, we took much of that in with a grain of salt, knowing that we were going to create our own unique community and classroom culture to uplift our students in the best way possible. As the week-long professional development continued, Mario and I learned that we shared much in common regarding our Chicano philosophies and ideas of what makes a good educator. We eagerly anticipated that point in our first week of professional development where we would be able to actually visit the Stonehurst campus and see our classrooms for the very first time. When the day arrived that we finally had to report directly to our classroom and our very first administrator, Mrs. Mary Cook, we found that many of our illusions of what these learning spaces would look like were very different from what we were accustomed to as elementary students.
Stonehurst Elementary School, where it all began. Stonehurst was built in the 1970s at a time when educators were experimenting with alternative methods of engaging student learning, among other things. The physical space inside each classroom and the four walls that made up what we thought of as a traditional classroom were redesigned to foster community and to build cross-classroom and cross-grade level collaboration among teachers and students. Stonehurst Elementary School's new and creative way of teaching was represented in a unique design that offered few of the comforts a traditionally trained educator might expect in their classroom. As we walked through the halls of Stonehurst, we noticed an almost open air feel that included only a few outer walls and practically no doors inside the physical structure. The classrooms were set up in pods, which, were, which housed six classrooms each. The pod concept was said to encourage this cross-classroom collaboration. However, it also created a space that offered very little privacy with little to no wall space to hang posters and any necessary information for students. Also, it allowed the noises from each classroom to creep into other rooms throughout the day. Mario and I and many other Stonehurst new hires were baffled by this strange design, wondering how we could teach in classrooms side by side with no walls. While we understood the concept and the goals of cross-classroom and cross-grade level collaboration and instruction, we were in no way trained to operate in an environment such as this, and it became our number one concern at the moment. As we walked through the open pod in the rear of the school on the first floor called B-Pod, we got to know some of the other teachers that had also been hired and would be working with us, assuming we all survived the year. I was assigned to room B5, to the left of my doorway would be the Ana Velez, who was hired to teach first grade bilingual students. Assigned to the right of my classroom was my best partner in crime, Mario. He was assigned room B4 and would become the heart of the pod and of the school in many ways. I don't recall the three other teachers who shared a pod with us, but I immediately felt very comfortable with Diana and Mario being on either side of me. Paredes de carton. Cardboard walls. As that Thursday morning progressed, Mario, Diana, and I considered many creative ways to form makeshift walls to enjoy some of the privacy a traditional classroom would afford us. We settled for taking the rolling shelving units in each of our rooms and structuring them so that they would form dividers between our classroom spaces. This left immense gaps between the top of the shelving units and the ceiling in each classroom. Then we had the idea of taking large pieces of cardboard that remained from the boxes that contained our basic teaching supplies, flattening those boxes and constructing makeshift walls that we then proceeded to cover over with large, colorful sheets of butcher paper, giving the illusion of actual walls, but giving none of the protection that real walls would offer against the piercing laughter and thundering voices of students and teachers competing for attention. As we continued building our cardboard fortress walls, we took time to help one another with tasks requiring more bodies. Spending time in each other's classrooms, we slowly began to find commonalities and build new and lasting friendships. Mario and I developed a strong collegial bond 
and a deep friendship that allowed us to support one another through the ups and downs of teaching, something I now realize is vital for those new to the teaching profession. This friendship has become invaluable and priceless as we approach milestone markers in our careers. Our friendships with colleagues also extended our circles to include our families and friends from before this new transition in our lives. When I reflect on my first three years of teaching, the friendships I made led to an extended family that continues to fill my heart and home to this day. Without this circulo, I would not have the stamina and perseverance to survive this crazy making journey. As the hours flew by, bringing us closer to the first day of school, we each struggled with our own demons, asking ourselves if we had made the right decision to pursue a career in education. Even something as seemingly simple as the physical structure of a classroom mystified us as we grappled with the weight of the situation we now found ourselves in. Once we had constructed our wall bases and covered them with beautiful shades of red, green, yellow, and brown, I realized that I had not even opened any of the shelving units that were part of my fortress walls. I walked over to one yellow double-doored rolling shelving unit and opened the door to find old photographs, stacks of faded construction paper, open packages of lined writing paper, old student work, torn up magazines left over from a collage activity, many child-sized scissors, many of which had Elmer's glue sticking to them, making them no longer useful, garbage, and probably most ironic of all, teachers' manuals with no corresponding textbooks or piles of English language arts textbooks with no teacher's manual. This seemed to be the most puzzling of my finds as we had not yet been trained in curriculum design or implementation of any curricular subject matter whatsoever. That training would not happen until weeks, if not a few years, yeah, I said it, into our teaching careers. I pulled these items out of the cabinets, attempting to sort through them to make sense of everything I was looking at. Still, the enormity and gravity of the situation began to sink in when I realized that we had not been well prepared for our first day of teaching. There was no way that I could properly instruct young minds and meet all of the California educational standards without receiving the proper training and materials. As colleague after colleague rattled off the same discoveries in their almost empty shelving units, we began to embrace the fact that we were in this all alone and had no one to rely on but ourselves and each other if we were going to meet the needs of our students. Talking Walls, the relevance of what children see in a classroom. At that moment, I decided to shift my focus and not worry about the curriculum, but instead to focus on the classroom environment and what I wanted my students to feel the moment they walked through my door. I strongly believe that education is not simply what you find on the pages of an assigned textbook, or sometimes even in the instruction provided by the adult in charge of that classroom. It also lies on the actual walls of classrooms, which can have a compelling impact on how children feel when they walk through the door on the first day of school. I began to recall my own educational experiences as a child, a preteen, and a young adult 
And I realized that much of my learning experience came from the relationships I built with my teachers and classmates, and also the careful way that many of my more effective teachers designed their classroom spaces. There were certain rooms where I felt welcomed and motivated, and my curiosity was thoroughly engaged. I began relying upon those old memories of my education for inspiration. What would an ideal classroom look and feel like? What parts of a classroom setting most motivated me and engaged my ability to learn? How could I encourage my young scholars to look at education as a tool for liberation? What would make my students want to be here? One might say that the walls of my classroom often resembled an art gallery installation. During my first year of teaching, I began to gather and collect immense amounts of posters, artifacts, and other items for display that were connected to my indigenous Chicana experience. My mother and I began collecting various Chicano artifacts representing our history and culture throughout my childhood and early adulthood. During those first two weeks of my career, along with my mother's help, I took time to rifle through our personal and collective treasures and bring many of them into my classroom to share with my students. I knew that most of the children I would be teaching, a group of 20 second graders placed in my charge, were mostly the children of immigrants from Mexico and other parts of Latino America. I imagined they would have little background knowledge of the events that transpired on this land, once known as Mexico, and long before that, the land of Anahuac, the indigenous lands of the so-called Americas. And so I wanted to enlighten them about the history, rich heritage and political experiences of their Mexican American and so-called Latin American counterparts here in the United States. I wasn't sure if this would impact my students at the time, considering that they were only about eight or nine years old. Still by introducing them to this new knowledge, I thought I would encourage my students to look at the world through a broader lens and make personal connections with history. The significance that my walls would take on during my first year of teaching elementary school was astonishing. I never knew that walls could teach so much. My decision to use my walls as a learning tool beyond just the simple charts containing the alphabet and numbers inspired me to continue to look at this as a valuable tool through which I could teach all of my students for years to come. Even today, as a high school Rasa studies teacher, the environment I create in my classroom before a single student sets foot in the room at the beginning of each year is positively highlighted by colleagues and administrators alike. On the first day of classes, when my students begin walking through the door, I take note of their reaction when they look at my four walls as their first lesson of the year. These makeshift cardboard walls became one of my signatures as an educator, always looking for ways to present my students with a foundation that would encourage them to ask questions and be curious, even before they understood the content of my course. As I decorated the walls of my classroom that first year at Stonehurst, I created spaces that would offer specific themes upon which I would build activities and foster many of the lessons I would also be teaching during each unit. I also created a visual display of the diversity I hope to encourage within the Stonehurst community. Our school at the time was made up of an almost even split of Latino and African-American families, 
often at odds with one another because of the racial divide between our two communities for hundreds of years. This is not an accidental phenomenon, but a direct result of the divide and conquer strategy that the dominant white community has employed, employed to ensure that our people never unite to take any power for themselves. This divide, already present before my friends and I joined the Stonehurst staff, inspired us to work toward building black and brown unity on campus and ensuring that our classroom pedagogy and curriculum reflected all our students' cultures to the best of our ability. As a result of our ethnic studies and Chicano studies background, Mario and I very clearly saw the need for a curriculum that taught our community about their ancestry and heritage. As many of the children we encountered each year were the children of recent immigrants, if not immigrants themselves, many of them being undocumented. We also discovered that there were not only many Mexican families migrating to Oakland, but it was the beginning of what would eventually become a larger Central American migration, including families from El Salvador, Guatemala, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. Most of the children we taught in our classrooms were of Mexican heritage. Still, we were aware that changes were on the horizon. So within the first few weeks of class, I began to rely upon and utilize the unique abilities my undergraduate coursework afforded me, along with my own personal experiences, leading me into the classroom as practical tools for teaching these young brown children about our history here in the United States. Our passion for our heritage and history equipped us with the necessary drive to design our unique classroom systems, thus captivating learners and stimulating their inquisitiveness and hunger for knowledge. The lack of any relevant curriculum about the various indigenous mestizo people of the Americas made our mission much more meaningful. Designing Raza Studies in the Elementary Classroom. Designing curriculum was not something I envisioned as a great responsibility I would be undertaking. When I first considered becoming a teacher, I imagined that the school district would provide the material and lesson plans as expectations connected to the California state standards and teaching framework. Through all my experience as a pre-service tutor and classroom aide, aid, it never dawned on me that many of the lessons I observed were designed 100% by the teacher and not part of some prescribed packaged curriculum. After realizing that I was not being handed a how-to manual for educating the 20 beautiful brown faces that walked through my door on the first day of school, I began figuring out exactly what I needed to teach and what my need students needed to learn. It wasn't as simple as looking at the previous year's test scores or initiating a diagnostic reading and writing evaluation during the first week of school. I wanted my instruction to go deeper than that, to inspire, to conspire, to incite, and to spark a flame that would eventually form a fire in these children's hearts and minds. I was becoming aware that my role as a classroom teacher meant more than just reading stories, playing with math manipulatives, and having parent-teacher conferences each year. The possibilities that came along with my role as a teacher soon became clear. I decided that the lack of adequate teaching materials was in fact a blessing in disguise. I realized that I now had a unique opportunity to design my own units of study. These lessons could take my students on a historical intergenerational journey, remembering who and what they were. 
young warriors who could bring about the changes their community needed to even the playing field. I knew absolutely nothing about designing curriculum. I had not yet enrolled in a teacher credential program during my first week of teaching. I was literally building the plane as I was flying it, and it felt both exhilarating and mortifying at the same time. On my first day of school, my daughter was just a few days into her third year of life. I saw my role as a mother in many ways similar to and connected with my role as an educator. Parenting involves a significant level of patience and compassion combined with a sense of understanding the needs of the child or children in your care. I had the help and support of my amazing mother, who is also a now retired librarian, to help me make sense of this new responsibility I had taken on. And her knowledge of children's literature has been invaluable throughout my years in the classroom. Instinctively, I began to design my first elementary school curriculum around particular children's books that connected to Mexican American and Chicano culture. As a lifelong librarian, my mother instilled in me a love for children's books. As a mother, I was always on the lookout for meaningful yet entertaining children's literature that would help my daughter grow a passion for reading and lifelong learning. Growing up, I remember always having access to books that spoke to the experience of different cultures here in the United States. Those were the book titles that belonged in my classroom library. I'll never forget the first day of school. I had spent the last couple of days of the previous week frantically trying to prepare my classroom for my new second grade students. I knew that two days would not be enough and that I was not the only new teacher at Stonehurst scrambling to prepare their room for Monday. Mrs. Cook, our principal, was kind enough to open the school over the weekend, both Saturday and Sunday, so we could ready our rooms for the children. My mom was amazing, supporting me in every way possible to prepare for my first year as a teacher. And this included what later became a yearly tradition of spending a day or two with me in my classroom, helping me to set up bulletin boards, organize my children's library, and clean the desk with Lysol wipes. We must have stayed at the school with my three-year-old in tow until about four or five in the afternoon when Mrs. Cook announced over the loudspeaker that it was time to leave so we could go home and try to rest to be ready for the next day. Of course, she knew that none of us would really be resting, but instead would frantically be working on last minute additions or revisions to our lesson plans and readying our students' name tags and desk plates to be just right for the first day of school. And so we reluctantly pried ourselves away from the classroom and went home to dig in for a late night of final planning. I hope you enjoyed listening to more of the details of my personal story and experience as a new teacher, new to Oakland, new to the profession, and new to the calling that is education because it's, it's definitely not a job. It's not just a job that I go to every day or every year. It is so much more than that. And I, I hope that from my writings and from what I share in this podcast, that you're really getting a sense of that, not just for an ethnic studies educator, but for educators in general who are passionate about what we do. It is so much bigger than the paycheck for sure. <laughs> and, and bigger than the degrees that we have or the 
accolades that we may have, the, the letters that some of us may have behind our names, that's that's not why we do the work that we do. It's because we really care about our students and about the communities that we serve. And so I look forward to continuing to share more of my writings with you as time passes. And I'll actually continue this chapter that I'm sharing with you. I'm basically halfway through. So I'm hoping that I'll share the next part of this chapter either next week or the week after. And I look forward to spending time with you. I encourage you all to give me feedback, feedback on my podcast, feedback on my writing, and any ideas that you want to contribute, anything that you would like to share, any, anything that you want to see develop in this podcast, I would really greatly appreciate you reaching out to me at ttctinfo, I-N-F-O, at gmail.com. You can also find the link to my website at thesemillasaraices.wordpress.com. I'll put the link in this week's notes. And I also invite you to check out my blog, which is also located on that page. I'm still working on a lot of these things. I'm still developing them out. But with your feedback, with your suggestions and ideas, and the fact that it is summer and I am back from my vacation and am going to be digging into these projects, you'll begin to see these things develop and grow a lot more. And with that, I wish you love. I wish you peace. I wish you time to rest in La Quetch. Mm -hmm.